Unplanned work can blow up estimates, kill team morale, and drive down productivity, which makes it no surprise that the best agile engineering leaders target operations improvements as a core value. Today's guest, Sean Quinsler, takes that mission even deeper. Scaling engineering teams is what Sean does, and he joins Ledge to discuss balancing efficiency with empathy for customers and team members, a concept and goal state he blends into what he calls frictionless development. When we recorded this episode, Sean was the director of engineering at Zen Planner. He's since gone on to co-found Manatee, where he serves as the company's CTO. Sean, thanks for joining us. Um, good to have you. Ledge, thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Thanks so much. Can you give your little you know, two or three minute bio just so everybody can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, so I am a uh, director of engineering. I came up through the software engineering ranks um, doing uh, a lot of Java development. Uh, I've worked for large enterprises as well as um, startups through phase two, um, through exit. A um, lot of experience uh, developing, growing, mentoring uh, engineers of all different types, uh, mostly software engineers, a little bit on the DevOps side and infrastructure uh, as well. Um, but scaling teams um, mainly now for uh, SaaS type businesses and and products. I currently work at Zen Planner, and so um, we are a SaaS B two B and B two B to C, if you will, um, as we support uh, boutique gyms and how they run their businesses and how they support their uh, their gym members. So that's sort of the high level. Great. Yeah, I think you probably have to have a lot of customer sort of empathy in that space. And, and I think that goes back to, I've read about, you know, on your, on your profiles and such, you know, you're big into sort of agile and, you know, the servant leadership role of the engineering leader. And, you know, I was just wondering like, how have you grown teams around that? And, and what's, what's that been like to, um, you know, engage yeah. and, and start to bring up an engineering team? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it, it comes back to culture and values, you know, as an organization, really getting in touch with what are the organization's values and, and what do they um, really put importance on. So um, that also um, comes from the customers as well as sort of what, you know, what, what are your users like and getting, really getting to know them. And so there's, there's a lot of um, people that really have a philosophy that engineers should be, you know, sort of in this back room and sort of been, you know, maybe they're getting more collaborative with product and such, but um, sort of disconnected from the customer. And I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think really the more that you can engage um, your engineers with the customers, and we do that on a regular basis, whether it's through calls or, you know, we have the benefit of having, we have 7,000 customers around the world. And so we have a lot that are local. And so visiting, you know, a CrossFit gym or a yoga studio or a martial arts school, um, and actually getting to see how uh, our users are using the software, solicit some feedback. Um, you know, these guys aren't on the front lines, but the empathy that they come back with is really incredible. So that um, that is sort of kind of where it starts. So no matter where they're working, they really have a good gauge on uh, the customer's needs and, and desires and, and their likes and dislikes. And they often get proven, disproven, you know, whatever theories we may have about, about usability and such. Um, another thing is within the teams themselves, um, how important it is to really engage on that sort of emotional, that EQ level with 
engineers. Um, you know, I, I think another faux pas is that, you know, we're all introverted and, and really, you know, just don't want to be socializing as much. And, and um, although that is absolutely true that, you know, we have, we have a ton of introverts in our industry, um, we're, we're still humans in the end. And so as we're expected to deliver and perform as a group, um, having basic things like trust and empathy for one another um, and the ability to lower your ego um, through, uh, you know, the ability to fail and how the team responds to how you fail um, and how they can help pick you up and how we're all focused on the greater good. Um, the, when you can alleviate those things, that's when I see the best performance out of engineers. The, the, they're, they're much happier. They're able to um, deliver and they're able to quickly admit any mistakes or failures because they know that they're not going to be chastised for it. It's interesting. You know, I think it, it almost splits down the middle for me and maybe it's, you know, we could talk about, you know, type A, type B, introvert, extrovert, whatever that is. When I talk to technical leaders, VPs of engineering, what have you, half the guests really want to take this vector of the the human side and half want to take, of, let me tell you all about my technical stack and the way we do engineering and the CICD pipeline and all those things. But I mean, how does that fit together in your daily world? Certainly you must be doing some kind of architecture, uh, actual technology things, but that doesn't seem to be the way that you address work as the passion area. How does that, how does that work? Because you're in the engineering seat. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. They're absolutely both passions of mine. I think it's just that it, the the EQ part of it and the social connections and building those relationships, it, it just has to be the cornerstone of it. So once you have that, then you have a high performing team that then you can go attack the real problems with, right? And so that's that's the, on the tech side. And so you know, for my current job, it's a lot of you know working through uh, legacy technologies and. Um, getting past, you know, old patterns and designs that were put into the system that's um, quite aged now. And, and how, do we, um, how do we properly support our customers as we build out new platforms on microservices with Kubernetes um, while still having those dependencies on the legacy system? Um, you definitely have a lot of struggles because, um, you know, developers um, are not excited to work on the legacy necessarily. Um, but it's, uh, it's a necessary evil that we have. And there's really an art to how you can reverse engineer that and use, you know, the strangler pattern and other items to help you alleviate it and help us get it under control so that we can start to get more of our processing into microservices um, and start to uh, dockerize everything and, and get to uh, just get to a better place in general. And I think that's, that nice middle ground, right, between this this sort of EQ-driven people stuff and then the technology stuff. And you you said it off mic, and I'd, I'd love for you to delve into how you're calling it friction, frictionless development or frictionless you know, software engineering and how that's a goal and um, maybe the way that you can connect those those two worlds together yeah. to, to drive some of that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, part of being a successful engineering leader um, is to truly listen and act on the problems that your team is facing. You know, I think it's, 
uh, it's quite common, whether in one-on-ones or in group settings for leaders to just say, you know, sort of, hey, what's in your way? What are your blockers? What can I help you with? And um, even though it's important to ask those questions, you know, a lot of times you're going to get the feedback that's, oh, no, things are going well, or, you know, they, they may not be asking for it because you're ne- not necessarily in the trenches with them. And so as an engineering leader, I think digging into the specifics or enabling people to feel like they can um, they can bring up the smallest thing. If it's something that's slowing down their productivity and how we develop, test, or deliver software, I want to hear about it. And I want to try to take action on it. I'll prioritize it and work that through so that um, they um, have that the term I said, yeah, frictionless development engineering, right? So it's it can be anything that helps us to develop. So, um, you know, whether it's tooling, uh, uh, you know, performance within your laptop or um, the delivery pipeline uh, through integrations. Um, how do we automate everything we can in the release process, um, the testing process? Let's look at the handoffs. Um, you know, we have full automation and we have software engineers and test uh, at my current role, but we, um, there's, you know, there's still going to be some, some handoffs, some dialogues between them. Find out where are the weak spots on that, where um, is work getting slowed down in the flow. We're big, very big on uh, Kanban, having focus and flow. And so um, you can expose and realize those deficiencies really quickly and attack them. And so, um, so again, kind of comes back to the EQ part. It's just like being able to get people to, to speak up and be very thorough about everything that we can improve on a process basis and technologically, um, and then hunting those things down, whether that's um, addressing it uh, through the budget, um, being able to get more tooling, uh, more expertise, um, or spinning up a project. We have one right now that we're calling just simply engineering experience. And it's, it's focused solely on these things. And then giving that team the autonomy to run with it. So, you know, your objectives are just that reduced friction in dev test and delivery. And um, how do you go about doing that? That's, that's up to them. So I'm sitting there dialoguing with them and helping them to prioritize the backlog. But it's really something that I want them to own. The engineers are the stakeholders here. And I want to see what gets them the most fired up, the most excited um, problems that they want to solve that aren't necessarily architectural in nature. Uh, we have plenty of those, but the, this team is solely focused on how do we build and ship product better. So our listeners are probably thinking, yes, we want that too. You know, we want to do that. Let's talk about a couple of actionable takeaways to just get that started. If, if I'm sort of like, hey, I'm in the middle of this organization and it doesn't feel like what Sean is saying and I'm frustrated and our stuff is breaking and people are kind of not having a good time. What are some, some places that um, you, know, you can actionably actually start doing something? Right. Well, number one is getting visibility. I think having a good understanding and um, if you can have metrics will even help even more to how much unplanned work is there, right? So um, whatever methodology you're using, um, you know, implement your own mechanism for how you track unplanned work. And it's not just like you know, perhaps, uh, you know, a bug or uh, product management gives you a new priority for, uh, for a product which, you know, derails uh, the sprint that you have ongoing. I'm also talking about all of those things where, you know, um, 
uh, we have intermittent test failures or um, the, uh, the build process uh, is failing um, under certain conditions. Um, it's taking longer to uh, get pull requests approved. It could be really anything in, in the whole realm that um, is really just sort of that unplanned work. What is blowing up your estimates? And once you drill into those things, you kind of have not only a backlog, but you have finite numbers that you can put behind it that you can help sell to, you know, whether it's leadership, uh, the business, um, whoever your stakeholders are, or, you know, um, PMO, for instance, you know, so that you can, again, uh, do maybe something similar to what we're doing, where you devote a team to it. Um, I've never had any good luck saying, okay, we're going to allocate, you know, this much percentage of our sprints to uh, care and feeding or tech debt. Um, you really, at, at some point, need to have uh, ongoing efforts um, or at least a dedicated effort for a long period of time uh, to focus on these problems and not be distracted by the day-to-day -day, um, so that they can actually uh, allow everybody else to perform better. You make a really interesting point there, and other guests have said similar things that, you know, we get obsessed with this idea now of dev ops as if it's all about tooling. Um, but the reality is that there's like a lot of this is just about ops and making a more efficient operation that in fact doesn't drive the developers crazy and reducing that friction. And some of that has nothing to do with tooling or reporting or development flows or release cycles. And it really just has to do with like what's what's really going on on the ground and, and what used to just be operations doesn't have to be called DevOps. Do you see that happening? Absolutely. It's funny. Not only do I see it personally in, in, in my career right now, but you know, I'm hearing about it more and more in the industry. Um, you know, the the DevOps movement um, is uh, sort of cannibalizing agile according to some folks you know it's really uh you know perhaps a strong term but it's it's sort of morphing into uh, a larger effort which is again like you said more than just the technology and now we're talking about entire process improvement we're talking about project management um that all of that is a large component within devops and so completely agree. It's, um, you know, I've always defined DevOps more as a culture, first and foremost. And then within it, you have tooling, you have processes, um, you have structures and communication lines, um, and of course, responsibilities and individuals um, that have their own roles within it. Um, but absolutely, it's, it's really exciting to see that um, the two, Agile and DevOps, sort of, you know, merging um, to give us the best output because de it seemed like the DevOps movement sort of started on its own and then started adopting more and more of the Agile until I, I think we're kind of realizing now as a whole, like, hey, this is sort of one and the same, right? In order to deliver and have effective ops, we need to adopt all the Agile practices. Again, like I said, focus and flow being um, two of the really big ones that we get the most benefit from. Yeah, we could dive into the historical context of lean. I mean, all of this goes back to, you know, the 90s, right, where, you know, you're talking Poppendike and, you know, all the sort of experts of this stuff where, you know, it, it's about eliminating waste. And lean was always about eliminating waste. 
And sometimes I think we get a little locked up in this, you know, sort of magnificent uh, tooling empire that, <laughs> that we can build, <laughs> which probably doesn't eliminate and, and might actually add a lot of friction because now I need to figure out how to use all this stuff. The education yeah. of the ecosystem now uh, consumes a lot of, of brain power. And uh, yeah, how do you even yeah. choose what to put in place because you don't want to add more burden? Now, ultimately, people just want to write code and, and deploy product. You know, it's, it should be about speed to market. Exactly. And it's a balancing act. You know, I encourage my engineers to go out and look at and experiment with new technologies and we'll um, take uh, innovation time to experiment with these as well. And we've had some really good findings and we like to um, consider them for um, for productionalizing them. Um, but there's, there's a balancing act with that, even when there's something, you know, such as Kotlin, which is getting so much of a following now. And it's, uh, it's really getting some steam. Um, we have to kind of step back right now and consider, Hey, do we want, you know, a fifth language in our stack? Um, what are the challenges that we have right now when we onboard someone to, uh, you know, how long does it take them to pick up the different various languages that we have right now? What does that bridge look like for how long would you be, you know, on Groovy or on Java, you know, migrating to Kotlin? Would you do it everywhere? Would, you know, are you okay with it being um, piecemeal? And so really sort of stepping back and looking at that big picture of whether it's tooling or languages in this case, um, and having those dialogues, but allowing the engineers, um, to sort of, you know, I promote them to, uh, to, to give their, to build their case. I, I want to hear all the pros and cons that they have. I want to try to shoot some holes in it too, but I know that as a group, we're going to come up with the best solution. And if not, then we're going to pivot again. So, you know, we can always try something. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an evolution, not a revolution. And so, you know, as long as you give the team the opportunities to explore that, um, but give them the tough questions too around, you know, the sustainability of it. As you think of it as a leader, how, do, how am I going to grow this team and continue to foster and sustain this? Um, all those things have to be considered with the new tooling. Where are some places that, you know, you've just run down an experimental path in some of this organizational stuff and just hit the wall and had to go back, you know, what, like some, some fail stories, because I think it's easy for us to have hindsight bias when we're having these conversations and, you know, people in the field are going like, this stuff doesn't work in my organization. Um, where are some places that, you know, you ran into the wall or you hit a major speed bump and we can warn folks who are, are trying to, Hey, watch out for this. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, that's a really good question. I would say, you know, one thing that comes to mind um, is around, around autonomy, sort of bringing, you can, you can definitely go a little bit too far. And I, I, I want to say, I want to caution people that, um, but that it's okay as well, because as long as you're reminding the team that you're experimenting and you're willing to change. So for instance, um, you know, based on some of the ideas in Google's work rules, um, the Laszlo Bach book, um, you know, kind of gave me the idea to, Hey, what if, you know, when we're, if we're deciding to change up our team structures, um, how about letting the, the individuals choose their own teams? We'll kind of say, you know, based on 
stakeholder input, we know that, you know, in our direction technologically, we're going to need some, some different teams focused, is on, focused on these areas. And you guys go ahead and self-form, like literally self-organize and self-form your teams. Um, and let's see where it goes from there. And so we tried that a few times and we had uh, some good luck, but we also kind of got to a point where maybe the strongest personalities in the room were sort of stepping up to, to take a particular area or people were being so modest that they were saying, uh, you know, just like I, um, I could be on any of these teams. And, you know, they, I think we were kind of losing some of the strategy. Like how do we work together as a group to strategize around the best formation of a team, the most effective. And so um, in the end, you know, I think that was sort of an experiment that I don't want to say it failed, but um, I learned a lot from, you know, it's, it's tough to sort of bring a group together and just say, all right, how, what is the most effective way for you guys to form? And there's some things that I think being uh, on the sidelines as an engineering manager and engineering director, you, um, you have a, your vision and, and insight um, can kind of guide and, and help, you know, things like team structures be more effective. Um, however, Again, I wouldn't caution people not to do it because it was such a cool experiment. It was such a great learning process. And I think um, what made me not have to necessarily eat crow on that, you know, kind of like switching back to, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of drive, you know, our team structures now was that I re kept reminding the team, hey, we're experimenting. We're going to see how this goes. Ultimately, we're looking for the best results for our customers. So, you know, help us do that. And I think the team really respects the fact that we try and experiment, we fail, and then we just change it up from there. How about a, a technology path learning experience or learning opportunity, not failure, right? But, you know, a place where you, you ran down a road with a, a tooling or a framework and you're just like, wow, this is not going to work. Back it out. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Um, so, you know, one in a former life definitely had some experiences with Groovy that way. You know, it was, uh, you know, people were quickly jumping on drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, and we were really enjoying the experience, but we realized as we started to replace a lot of our Java implementation code with Groovy that we weren't getting the performance results out of it. And so um, we ended up reverting a lot of that, going back to Java and just using Groovy for testing, which I think, especially when you couple it with Spock, makes an incredible test framework. Um, and the... Um, the flexibility that it gives you um, while not taking an impact on performance. We're in the business of evaluating and vetting and staffing. It's just like the very best engineers. And, and that goes on a technical realm and on that soft skill and, and leadership type realm. I wonder what are your heuristics because you do have a high performing team. You know, what, what do you do when you're adding people there? How do you measure and, you know, make sure that performance is living up for each of the members of your team. Sure. In the interview process or once they're onboarded and staffed? Well, I'd love to know both. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, in the interview process, it again starts with culture and values alignment, uh, really digging into what they're passionate about and see how that passion aligns with ours. And then digging into their specific experience. I um, can't stress enough how important it is. You can get a much better feel from someone as you dig into their stack, dig into their day to day, 
and the challenges that they have. And again, all the while you're looking for what they're passionate about and maybe looking for what they're less passionate about. And there's no problem with that. We're all, all going to have some things that we're not as excited about, but see sort of, does that align with the role? Does that align with the team? Um, I want to learn something in the interview process. You know, I really, I strongly believe in hiring people that are smarter than me, hiring people that are talented in areas that my team may lack and they're going to, to better complement us. And so if I leave an interview and I, and I, they haven't taught me something about either their systems or the technologies that they're most proficient in, um, I either probably haven't dug in quite far enough um, or, um, or maybe they're just not up to par on those levels. Um, so the technical part seems to be, um, controversial lately. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of bashing of, of whiteboard interviewees, interviews, right? And I, I do completely relate that, you know, that it's not on a day-to-day -day basis that you're on a whiteboard, you know, fighting for survival. <laughs> and so to me, I like to balance it because, um, I want to say that you actually, it is very important that you can communicate your technical abilities and the solutions that you're proposing um, to other people. And so whether that's the whiteboard or explaining it or even coding um, along with us in an interview, it's very important that I'm not only seeing the technical abilities, but I'm seeing how you're able to relay that because I may be asking a pretty simple question and I like to keep the interviews, you know, they're, they're relatively softball type questions for, um, for the type of work and the type of challenges they'll really be facing um, day to day because I want to see, number one, I want to sort of discount for the nerves that you may have, but also I want to um, see how, you're, how are you able to communicate something to me when I already have a full understanding of it because I know the answer to this question because there's going to be a day when I ask you a question technical in nature and I need to know um, that I can trust and I'm going to be able to understand the solution that you're proposing or the information that you're relaying. Um, because if I don't understand it, it's going to be that much more of a reliance on the communication. So, um, so for me, I think it's very important to do, you know, whiteboard type or, you know, actual exercises where you're in person, uh, take home assignments, you know, over the weekend sort of coding projects are, are fine too. Um, but, I really like to see that interaction piece so that I can understand how, how will I actually work with this person in the trenches on technology. Um, and then the other part of the question, you know, sort of once they're onboarded, once they, they've, you know, they've gotten the um, environment set up, they've gone through some basic training and they're starting to do some work, uh, lots of pairing. We do a lot of uh, pair programming and high collaboration as it is, but pairing with somebody that, uh, maybe complements uh, their skill set and um, can give them some uh, some some room to spread their wings and uh, get an opportunity to work in the tasks um, and give us some results and then being able to look at the pull requests uh, look at the code that they're generating um, discuss it in group settings too we'll have a lot of architectural type uh, code reviews that are more focused on design uh, than than actual syntax and uh, ensuring that, you know, individuals are getting on board with our patterns, our practices, um, they're understanding uh, the system and they're competent. They're able to describe and tell you what's going on. Excellent insights. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Really cool to have you here. 
Ledge, I really appreciate it. You have a great day, sir. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.